Yes, hello my beautiful friends, it is Brian Ford with Self-Improvement Daily. Take ownership of your personal development, one tip at a time. And it is time for a self-improvement sit-down. As you probably know, Monday through Saturday on the podcast, I feature a short two-minute tidbit about a different perspective or exercise or reflection or anything, really. I'm a firm believer in consistency, and consistency is key when it comes to your personal development. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and set your intention to prioritize your self-growth. I'm getting off track. Today is a self-improvement sit-down. This is when I take the time to talk in depth about important concepts that couldn't possibly be covered in two minutes. And I do so with people who are experts in their field and industries. And I've got a little surprise for you in this one. So let's get to it. This is self-improvement sit-down number 31 with Charlie and Richard Jaffe. And we are live. We've got a two for one today. Today's guests are Richard and Charlie Jaffe, a father-daughter combo that together wrote the book, Turning Crisis into Success, which is a memoir of Richard's illustrious career as an entrepreneur and the many lessons he learned along the way. Richard Jaffe grew his family business, Guido's Ice Juicies, through an IPO and an acquisition by Coca-Cola. And he also built SafeSkin, a medical latex company, and led it to an IPO and acquisition as well. Richard is now a part owner of the Phoenix Suns, a prolific poet, and a philanthropist. Now, fittingly, within the theme of turning crisis into success, Charlie is a crisis counselor with a master's in clinical psychology from Columbia and is an emerging executive producer in the suicide prevention space. After a long history of conflict resolution and diversity impact, Charlie has become a strong advocate for mental and emotional health. Wow, what an honor to have both of you. Thank you for taking the time to be with me today. Thanks for having us, Brian. Absolutely. What a treat. Two for one. So I, I want to start because um, I think it's important just to get on the same page myself and everyone that's listening uh, to talk about one of the critical words here in the book, which is the word crisis. You know, we hear about midlife crisis. We talk about crisis intervention, crisis counseling, Charlie. Um, but I think there's kind of a layer of subjectivity built into what is a crisis. So Charlie, you know, kind of as an expert and kind of um, a leader in this space, Would you mind sharing a bit about the scope of what a crisis is just as a starting point? Absolutely. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head there in saying there's so many different kind of conceptions of it. And there's a couple ways, you know, my dad will always tell you, his dad would say, uh, you know, crisis is just change over a short period of time. But I think when I look at the personal experience of crisis, it's when our level of challenge outpaces our ability to cope with it. And so it's in that place of breaking almost that we see crisis and it can be something that goes to very dark places, but it can also be something that cracks us open in a way that makes the space for growth that would never happen if we were in that comfort space. And when we look at some psychologists and how they talk about human growth, that discomfort and that confusion and all the feelings that come along with crisis are actually the very things that are necessary to growth, that we cannot grow without feeling that discomfort. And so it's not fun to experience, but it's incredibly beneficial in what we can get out of it. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Cause I mean, like no one asks for a crisis, right? Like it's one of those things where like you'd never wish for it for yourself, but, but that, that's kind of part of it is it, it kind of creates this situation and 
like then there is this experience of growth that you can come from it and kind of, you know, like recognizing that there's an opportunity built into crisis, but, but knowing that each experience is different and it's hard to relate person to person. That's why it requires like all of this background information and kind of um, some, some anecdotal evidence, but just like general frameworks and just kind of general understanding. So that's kind of why I wanted to lay the framework from a definition standpoint. Anything you'd like to add, Richard, or did she cover it? No, just crisis is inevitable. Okay. The question is, will it hold you back or will it catapult your growth? Our lives are going to go crisis to crisis to crisis, business, personal health. So the real key to life is how do we keep our emotional stability through crisis? And each one teaches us. And you know, we talk about that in the book. Mm -hmm. Good. Perfect. Well, that's only half of the title. And that's kind of the part of it here. Let's like set the framework. So, you know, turning crisis into success. So there's the crisis. Now let's talk about success. And Richard, you've, you've articulated that success kind of has two different branches, right? There is success in business, which is kind of the quite literal uh, translation of success, but then also happiness in life is the second criteria of success. And I want to kind of start with the first part of it and we'll grow into the second part but the first the first the business side right because that's a lot of the crisis that you're experiencing or that you're kind of reporting on in the book is more business <laughs> crisis so so kind of understanding that we're coming from that lens um you know and within business development too um a way to avoid crisis is to predict problems and as you call it to see around the corner right so I'd love to hear more about your philosophy when it comes to identifying that crisis might be on the horizon and getting around that corner so that you can be proactive about addressing it. You know, it's, we try and see around corners, but let me tell you, we can't avoid crisis. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. We just have to be prepared. I think the biggest key is how do we respond and not react? So when we hit a crisis, I call it the unknown unknown. You can plan for the unknown, and you have all sorts of plans, but it's really the unknown unknowns that kills us. Hmm. So the real issue is when we get into a crisis, many people, and myself when I was younger too, would take a look at it and try and react right away. And that's an immediate decision based on very few options. Instead, we need to learn to respond, which means look at the situation, accept the things we can change, identify the outcome we want, okay, and then figure out what our choices are. And it's, you know, I'm not saying not to do things. What I am saying is we've got to make sure we're responding to the correct problem. The perfect solution to the imperfect problem is not the same as the imperfect solution to the right problem. So hmm. we really have to pick what is the outcome we want. And then we can ask ourselves, is every decision getting me closer or further away? So it really is, you know, how do you define success? You know, everyone defines it differently. But the really bottom line is, how do you deal with crisis? And the way you deal with crisis is staying in the present, okay? You know, and accepting things you can't change and then trying to do the best you can. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's never going to be a straight path, right? Like there's always going to be something that pulls you out of your way one way or another. I love that you mentioned the unknown unknown because something that I do in, in my teaching and my programs, is I call them contingency plans. So let's say you set a goal and you want to get people like to actually have a plan for when things don't go according to plan. 
that is just the unknown, you know? So like, that's only one layer removed in terms of like, oh, I can predict that this is going to happen. I can predict this context. Now, how do I respond? That's the unknown. But then the next step is the unknown unknown. And that's just more like you're saying that's intuition based. That's just North star orientation, you know? So like there's a little bit more to that, um, that you need to work through and be intentional about rather than just explicitly having a plan. You need to have like the, the mental framework and like almost the, the creative strategies around real-time situations rather than predictable situations. It's that adaptability. You know, it, it brings me to what Charles Darwin had said, you know, in his origins of species and this, I'm paraphrasing, but it's that it's not the strongest of the species that survive or the fastest. It's the ones that are most adaptable to change. And so it's about if you need a plan in order to execute, you are not adaptable. Like you're prepared and that's great. But that adaptability, which comes back to the ability, yes, to respond and not react in all of this. But it's that idea of when all the plans are out the door and there's a dumpster fire in front of you, can you make a game time? Can, can you respond when, when you can't rest on any of that structure? Mm -hmm. You said game time decision making. That's David Meltzer right there. I, I caught that okay. one. Okay. So like, that's a really interesting point because then there's like a, a mindset and perspective around adaptability, right? So like, how can you get in that headspace to be creatively adaptable, you know, because it isn't, like we said, it's, it's, it's a reaction. It's kind of like an inherent, almost um, intuitive response rather than a planned response. And, and I, I'd love to hear Charlie kind of like, as we're touching on like, you know, your expertise in crisis management and like this adaptability that's built into it, like, are there any best practices or warning signs, or I guess what I'm kind of talking about seeing around the corners, but are there like some predictable factors that you can kind of acknowledge within yourself, maybe acknowledge in a loved one to help like redirect the ship and like basically prompt people into being adaptable? Is there consistency there? Yes, no, I would say, I would phrase it not necessarily as preparing to be adaptable. I would say oftentimes it's learning how to cope because crises, we're talking about crises turning into a success. That doesn't happen in that very second. So as nice as these ideas sound, for anyone who's listening who's in the middle of a crisis, they can have plenty of expl expletives come back when you say, oh yes, and all these things. So when we're in the heat of the moment, it's looking strategically out of different things, but it's also learning how to cope with some really, really tough emotions, feelings, and realities and, and, and potentials. And so I think one, there's, there's the internal psychological side, which I can totally dive into. I, I love that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think if we're looking at strategic action, where we're looking at how we interact with the outside world, it really comes down to asking for help. Um, mm. And I'm biased, you know, counselor, I, I like when people ask for help, but when we, you know, as you read in my dad's stories, when we look at every single crisis he was in, wasn't sure if he was going to get out, a theme that continued to come up that he didn't expect was asking for help. And so when we talk about creative strategies and being able to adapt, experience is one of our greatest teachers. We can't get that in a second, but we can, we can talk to the people who do have experience and who can see other things. So you know, when I think of people I work with in suicide prevention, there's something that happens with people who are in that high state of crisis. It's called suicidal constriction, but basically it's tunnel vision. And you don't have to have been at that state of crisis to know that when everything's happening and your entire body is freaking out and you can kind of not see past those blinders, we can't necessarily get ourselves out. But when we can ask for help, other people can help uncover paths that are there 
but we just don't have access to. And that is true in a mental health crisis. That is true in a business crisis. I would say across the board, that's one of the biggest keys in helping us jumpstart our ability to adapt and see other options. And, yeah. and Brian, I didn't realize that, you know, until after an interview after the book, someone said to Charlie, what'd you learn about your father writing together? You know, something you didn't know before. And she said, well, me and my friends, you know, we usually used to think asking for help was a weakness, mm -hmm. but it really is a strength, okay? And as she said, every, every single crisis I had, I got out asking for help. And the reason is when we get out of it ourselves, we only see our perspective. When we ask for help, we have many more choices. And in the end, I have to tell you, asking for help, it's all about connecting heart to heart, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, selling is all heart to heart. Relationships are all heart to heart. You know, uh, they say no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm -hmm. so it really is that aspect of connecting heart to heart, asking for help. And I have to tell you, people love to help. I mean, when you, someone asks me for help, I love to help them. We think we're taking, but we're not, we're giving. So, I mean, it's, it's not easy. Crisis is going to happen. It's better looking back than going through it. But there's so much to learn in each moment. And hopefully you learn from it so it doesn't happen again. Something else happens bad. So. Right. I'm so glad we spent time on that because that, that changed my life too, is understanding. Like that, that understanding of asking for help is a strength, right? Because there's like, it just requires confidence and it requires awareness. And like, those are really important qualities. And the fact that you're shying away from those means that there is an underlying problem larger than the problem that you're asking for help for, right? So it's like, that was a total shift when I learned that. And again, David Meltzer introduced me to that through his humility uh, philosophies, which, which is very interesting. I would say we, we all have different levels of access to help. You know, there's definitely a lot of us that have a lot more privilege and more access than others, but we all have the ability to develop out our networks and to develop out the resources in which we can ask for help. And I think we're also living in a world where people are much more conscientious now of wanting to give help. Like my dad was saying, people want to give help. I think there is a space where that's being developed. And so really seeing it, asking for help is a power move when we can do it from a place of confidence. So it's, I think, flipping it on its head. If it's something that's scary and if it's something that we have resistance to, doing it is not weak. Doing it is brave. Mm -hmm. And that's something hopefully we have time to touch on at the end, which is like the legacy piece. Once you have the business success, once you have the happiness, then what? And it's paying it forward. Like it's being of service and it's philanthropy. And it's like, it, that is, you know, uh, how do you put it? You know, it's- I call it going from success to significance. Right, success to significance. That's what we create for ourselves. Significance is what we create for other people. The only one thing I want to go back on what Charlie was saying there too is, is both in crisis and outside of crisis, what's really important for young people to understand is the question, ask yourself, do you want to be right or do you want to be successful? Because sometimes when things start going against us, we all try to prove we're right, okay? But that's not, you got to be very careful, okay? I mean, we, we say, look, it doesn't matter who's right. Let's be successful. Let's define what success is. and Let's make sure we're acting, trying to be successful, not letting the ego drive us to be right. Totally. No, I love it. I love this conversation. We could go on forever. I think humility and asking for help is like, it, it is the unlock to so many things in life, but we, we got to pause there for that. Um, before moving on from success, there's one more really in the business success. Uh, there, there's one very important thing that you have introduced to me, Richard, which is 
the idea of solving people's problems. And you have a quote in the book that is, we get rewarded in direct proportion to the size of the needs we fill. So if you want to have success in a business sense, again, kind of seeing around corners, you know, at safe skin, you predicted kind of the change in medical protocol and stuff and like how that was an opportunity, right? So seeing the future of problems, but would you mind kind of touching a little bit on kind of the nature of problems in a business sense? Well, I guess the issue is we get reward in direct proportion. So if you find a small need, you make a small amount. If you find a big need, you make a big amount. So what that really leads to is all of the answers sit with our customers. Our customers have all of our answers. I used to tease our salespeople and say, pretend our customer has my money. Find out what they want, give them what they want, they'll give me all my money back. So the real issue is, you know, how do you, I think a great story is, uh, you know, they asked uh, Wayne Gretzky, the best hockey player ever, okay? And a sportscaster once said, look, Wayne, you're not very big, you don't skate very fast, you don't have a hard slap shot. How could you be the best hockey player ever? And he modestly thought for a second and says, well, I just skate to where the puck is going to be. And think about that in business, which is what your question you asked about, is we need to learn to skate to where the customer is going to be. What are the products and services they're going to need in the future? Create them and then give it to them even before they know it. And in today's crisis environment, as Charlie said, my, my dad used to say, crisis change over a short period of time. It's danger and opportunity combined. The mm-hmm. idea is what's going to be needed in the future. Okay, mm-hmm. Crisis makes millionaires, billionaires. Some of the greatest companies came out of the hardest times. Okay, So what does the customer need? Now, I always liked uh, going to the customer, asking them one question. These are the toughest, biggest customers. I'd always say to them, what would you like to do today that you couldn't? It have the biggest impact on your life. And they would say, personal or business. Mm-hmm. So of course, I'd always say, tell me personal first, because I want to create that heart-to-heart connection. Yep. And some of the hard-ass people would, would open up and say, geez, I'd like to cure cancer. My mother has cancer. Or one said, you know, my son's got a clip lip. I'd love to cure that. Or I mean, but they open up and share with you. Then by the time you say, well, okay, what we'll, would we'll make the biggest difference in your business? I couldn't always solve it, but I then knew what their biggest problem was. In fact, one time I couldn't do it. I called a friend to go talk to them. He helped solve the problem. They called me back to the hospital. Three months later, I had all their glove business. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the issue is you do for other people, but find out their biggest need and try and fill it. Right. Yeah. It's, And I love that idea of connecting with them personally first, because then there's the vulnerability that lets them talk about their problem. And then you can solve their problem once they express their problem, you know? So like you're very customer centric. I've learned that. And that's such an important philosophy to have. Um, The other thing to get over that, because sometimes they don't tell you right away. But the other thing I say is no is the first step to any sale. mm -hmm. When they say no, okay, they say yes, they gave you an order. If they say no, then what we have to do is say, what's your objection? So once we overcome every single objection, they'll give you all the money. Sometimes they won't won't tell you what their objections are. But that's really a key in personal relationship and business is overcome their objections and then give it to you. And I would say that works great in business. Uh, When you have chubby little 10-year-olds like I was using that uh, on the dessert debate, the mothers around were a lot less thrilled. There was one house I was actually barred from negotiating from for dessert. There's, there's such a great example of that in the book, what you submitted to the FDA four times about hypoallergenic gloves, right? And it's like, 
one, no, two, no, three, no, four, yes. And nothing changed, you know? So like it literally is just kind that of. That goes back to one of the seven key ingredients is persistence, right? I wrote that down. Yep. But persistence. I had, I had no, I had no choice. I mean, that was the, my business could not, could fail if I didn't. And I just kept pushing, pushing, pushing because I thought it was the right thing. Beautiful. Cool. All right. So we covered success um, on the business side. So now let's get into the, the heart centered side. You keep talking about connecting to the heart, you know, this, this heart centric side and, and kind of, it's been articulated in the book very well, you know, that there are kind of two different relationships that you need to manage. The first one being your relationship with the self, right? The self care, self love, self acceptance, right? Because you cannot give what you do not have. So that makes a lot of sense, but something that's really deeply rooted in your family, your story and your future is relationships and how it's been a family business. It's been something that like you've been connected to the heart with your coworkers because they have been family members your entire life, you know, and that's, that's something that is so exciting because here you are, you know, both of you wrote a book together, right? And like, that's the first step of this kind of generation, you know, Papa Guido to Richard, Richard down to his children, you know, like it's, it's just so cool to watch how this all trickles. And Charlie, I'd love to hear, you know, hearing the way that Richard has used connecting from the heart throughout his career and then seeing it in action as you have been developing and now you're in a position to do it, you know, do the same. Um, what, what has connecting from the heart done for you? Has it opened doors? Has it been difficult? Kind of like just what's a reflection around that? Yeah, I, well, I think it's a great question. And I would say it's sort of my way of being in the world. I think it's how I've always operated is very connection focused. Um, and I would say, you know, vulnerability is so key for that, right? It's not just like, let me go connect with you, but let me share a piece of myself with you. Um, and that's something, you know, my dad has developed a lot more vulnerability in recent years. It wasn't necessarily his go-to. So that, I mean, I think for me, it was really beautiful to, to see that dynamic, but I would say, you know, when I, when I look at how I've lived my life, um, cause I went from, you know, journalism to Google and Silicon Valley and you know, ran around Southeast Asia. I've done, I've, I've had a lot of stuff. Um, but I would say as time has gone on, I've become a much more vulnerable person, right? I don't wait for someone to earn the ability for me to share myself with them, particularly being much more open about having had, you know, really intense physical and mental health challenges um, and being able to own the struggle portions of my life. I was honestly just totally freaked out and scared to do that when I first did it. But I found it completely transformed my life because all of a sudden I had people who felt like they knew me, who felt like they were already connected to me because I had given that, that part out. And mm. so it didn't only change my relationships with sort of the people I was close to, even just people I barely met, pa my parents' friends, you know, when I had shared about having had some really traumatic experiences and how I dealt with that and how my mindset, the mindset that made me successful and type A uh, and rewarded in so many senses actually really hurt me and others. And in sharing that piece of myself, all of a sudden, all these different people, my depth of relationship went so, so, so much deeper. Um, and so that's been just such a gift on a personal level, but also on a professional level, uh, being able to be invited into so many spaces based off of, yes, my work and my talent and my skill, but also oftentimes just that experience of being really open and connecting with people um, and having that vibe or just that you know, that nature. Yeah. I, I love how that's the way the response went because you're talking about being vulnerable and open with others and relationships. And what that did 
was it allowed you to be open with the relationship to yourself, right? And then it came back to that original part with the self-acceptance and the self-love because like we are just by nature very social creatures. So the fact that you had the awareness and the vulnerability to open up, you then were allowed to open up to yourself and accept that. And like, and then that showed up in your future relationships and it just became a cycle that ended up fueling itself until, you know, here you are just, you know, radiant, right? Like just radiant and like, and happy and proud. And, and, that's, and that's amazing. Richard, I, I'd love to um, kind of jump into a, a kind of a, an offshoot of that and kind of, again, getting into a quote in the book here. So you said, self-worth was tied to how much I loved and respected myself, not my business accomplishments. And that's so, be- I mean, that's beautiful, right? Because that just shows the duality that we have here between like the business success and the happiness and like they don't need, like it's, it's positioned as a duality, but they don't need to be a duality. Like you need to have your priorities. And I, I just love for you to kind of share more about that quote and what inspired you there. Sure. So, I mean, you know, I've been very lucky. I've been ho- happy a, lo- a lot of my life. I've written poetry for 40 years. And, and so I really in, in good touch myself, but, but really, uh, you know, self-worth and achievement are two separate things. And what helped me most getting through the crisis is even at the hardest time when we had foreclosure notices, personal guarantees, I still believed that if I lost it all, I could recreate everything again. I didn't want to, but as long as my family loved me, we had our health, I could recreate it. So it, it was just that belief and that connection. I will tell you that uh, going back to what Charlie said about vulnerability, one of the greatest gifts I got out of writing this book together, which I adored and love all the highlights of my life, is Charlie helped me to open up and be vulnerable. I mean, I'm a type A, move on forward, the glass is overflowing, you know, but, but, but by slowing down and finding the hardest moments in my life and being open and vulnerable to that, it just created a connection, an even deeper connection with me and myself. Okay, mm. and it allowed me to open up and to share and things like that. So I think that it's not easy. Okay, everyone does it a little differently. When I write poetry, it helps me to open up, be vulnerable. But the real issue is it's very important to separate the two. I know lots of people who sell their company for lots of money and are miserable. Mm-hmm. Charlie had a great line in the beginning of the book where she, she said, in my generation, a lot of us made a good living but how many made a good life? Mm. And today, young people are not willing to sacrifice. They have the choice. They want to have a good life as well as make a good living. And so we got to separate the two. We have to put the priorities in place, but it's really, really important uh, to keep your happiness um, in order to do that. Well, I guess I would add on to that though. I think we sometimes as a society can kind of get addicted to this need to feel happy all the time. Um, and I push back against that a little bit, um, because I don't think we're designed to be happy all the time. And I think, as we said before, those hard moments can build the foundation. But also when we, when we talk about happiness, there's philosophically, it can be divided into two pieces. There's hedonic happiness, that sort of instantaneous pleasure, not like wild parties, just that feeling in the moment. But then there's also eudaimonic happiness. And that refers a lot more to like deep meaning and for like actually new parent for parents, they, on the hedonic measures, they have kids that all plummets, but they report having a more happy, meaningful life. Um, 
And so that doesn't mean that they're not pulling their hair out, you know, with kids and tantrums. So I think also really when we look at what happiness means, happiness doesn't mean we feel good all the time. And having an acceptance of that, I think is actually so key. The ways we chase for happiness, I think are oftentimes our biggest obstacles to it. And so opening our perspective on what that means actually unlocks so much more meaning and fulfillment, I think, in life. And I look at it a little differently. Uh, I have got many more years than both of you, okay? So I would just phrase it a little differently. Um, I, I think I aspire to happiness. And I try to continue to, as I lose my happiness, I work to get it back. There's enough times in life where I'm going to have crisis. There's enough times I'm not going to feel good. But when I don't feel good for me, okay, then I try and figure out what makes me feel better. Playing basketball or golf, okay, being close to my loved ones. So I don't think there's anything wrong in aspiring to. But when you're not, I agree with Charlie, is I'm not happy. We're not happy all the time. When we're not happy, there's nothing wrong. And that's a great time to reflect and to learn. Okay. Well, one thing that my dad does well that he didn't necessarily articulate there is that when he's doing that happiness practice, there's not the underlying message of, oh, I should be happy right now. And so that's what I was getting at. It's not the like, you know, we can just all be miserable. It's accepting the things we can't change, but not adding that layer of pressure and just actually going through those healthy habits. Brian, as you have probably seen, my dad's like one of the most disciplined people I've ever met. Um, it's maddening sometimes, um, but it's also a great, great teacher. And I think one of the issues I'm lucky, Brian, is I don't really care what other people think. I mean, I, Not, try, I can vouch for that. Not even a little bit. <laughs> but I, I try and do the right thing. Okay. And by continually doing the right thing and not worrying what other people think, but just doing the right thing, it kind of gives me the confidence to keep moving forward. And mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Yeah. I even love the, I mean, there's just like, everything's coming full circle right now. Just, I love the, the banter between the two of you, which shows like, like how that experience, like going back to the vulnerability, how, you know, like Richard, you being the father figure and the strong person in Charlie's life and being able to open up like that has then exposed itself of you that she can now relate with a little bit more. And now your relationship is deepened from that. Right. So like there's, there's that element to it, which is extremely beautiful. And then you guys like, it's almost like you're in my head right now. You knew exactly where I was going kind of with the next phase of the conversation, just talking about how, you know, happiness is a balancing act and even referencing discipline, Charlie, because my favorite principle, which is probably a hot take, but my favorite principle is do today what feels good tomorrow. And I am with you, Richard. I am, I am Mr. Discipline. You can pull the audience, you know, I'm Mr. Accountability. I'm Mr. Discipline. And I think that is such an underrated skill set to have and such an underrated priority to have is like, like you said, the two, like Charlie, the two different forms of happiness, it's the hedonistic and then the other one, the word, I don't know, but there are two different forms of it. And, and like that deep rooted meaning and like investment in something like that comes and returns so much fuller and with so much more authenticity that that's what do today, what feels good tomorrow is about is investing in something that you know is going to be um, perhaps better suited or better appreciated by you. Um, but could I add in a word of warning around the super disciplined types? Sure. Just because I enjoy pushing back a little bit. Because I think discipline is beautiful, but I also think that um, the skills that really suit one situation, if we outgrow that situation, the thing that saves us in, in one place can actually start to harm us in another. And so, one thing that I find with people who are super disciplined um, is sometimes 
it's easy to not be disciplined about allowing rest. Hmm. Um, and so I find a, a lot of times with people who are so good about sticking to the schedule, sticking to the plan, we can sometimes get to the point where our bodies or our systems might start to give us the signs and warnings that it's time to have a little bit of rest and recovery. And we're like, absolutely not. That is not part of the plan. You go over there. Um, but the thing is, is if we ignore those signs, um, our system doesn't just say, oh, okay, cool. We don't need it. It'll start speaking to us louder and louder and louder. Um, and some of us can go on a very long time pushing it away, but those things do catch up to us. So I think being disciplined, yes, but at the same time, I, I think you're, you seem someone, like someone who really values that duality of things. So the, the duality of that fierceness and that hardness, but also that softness and that rest and rejuvenation um, is so, so key to sustainability over the long term. And even when we look at cre like creativity and ideas, if we just, there's certain types of work we can just like discipline and push through. But when it comes to creativity, oftentimes when we step away and get a little bit of a break and then come back, something will come in that's so much more useful than all these other hours of work could have brought. Um, and so it can just be very easy within our society and within our kind of type A structures to not create the space for that and to just be in productivity. Mm -hmm. But I think it is, like you had said, it's a balancing act. Yeah. The other thing, Brian, is let's go back and remember, happiness is not an external event, it's an internal event. Happiness, the root of happiness is learning to love ourselves, become our own best friend. That's really, because once we get there, everything else can happen. But until we love ourselves and become our own best friend, it's hard to share it. And we, our happiness becomes dependent on other people. So the, the discipline and the activities external are important. That's what life's about. But all through that, we have to find ways. I remember when I was working around the clock, I'd still try and take a half hour and go hit golf balls or run on the beach or some way where I would get away from it and just you know, allow myself to see things a little differently. And it's that connection to oneself that is critical. Yeah, I... I have the awareness to know that there are times when I neglect some of that, you know, like I'm very motivated and I have big aspirations and ambition and it, you're right. Like I'm, I'm not showing up as well at those tasks and like, what am I, you know, one of my core principles is enjoy the journey. And am I really enjoying the journey? Yes. I like the hustle, but I need to take care of myself to, to, to be at capacity basically. So I, I appreciate the duality. Yes, you're right, Charlie. I definitely do. <laughs> and, and something you mentioned a bit earlier, Richard, which is kind of the final topic. And I think very important to touch on, especially at your phase in life. But I'm also curious, Charlie, is, is the idea of legacy. We talked about shifting, you know, into significance and, and what that means. And especially with your family hierarchy, you know, how that kind of reputation and that discipline, work ethic and accomplishment has been passed down generation to generation. I'm curious, Richard, just to kind of hear more about, I don't want to say your expectations, but like, what do you see as the remnant of your existence and your contribution to the people around you with time? Well, well, my greatest legacy, I married 35 years to an angel. We got three beautiful kids. And so really our, our family and our family dynamics, we're very blessed, okay, as both as role models and just as interacting. I mean, that really has got to be my legacy. But we also, my wife and I also helped build the San Diego Jewish Academy. Okay, so we, you know, it, it's not, young kids don't listen to what you say, they watch what you do. Mm. And so it was something we're very proud of. We helped create something for other people. 
as I said before, I was fortunate enough, got enough breaks, escaped bankruptcy a couple of times and created some financial uh, uh, security, some wisdom experience my first 60 years and next 30 years, I want to give it all away. And so it's not only teaching Charlie and her friends, but it's just walking on this podcast and being open to share, look, here's what worked for me. And it is possible. Okay. I think part of Charlie talked about before is hope. You you got, you can hope that anything is possible. Hmm. Create the future. Don't change the present. Focus on what you want and live into it. So I think for us, the legacy really is just giving back and doing the best we can um, with what you got. I love that. Yeah. I, my, my mom famously quotes me. Um, anytime I would lose a, I played college soccer. Anytime I'd lose a big soccer game, she'd be like, Brian, how are you? And I, my response would be, I did my best mom, you know, and that's all you can do, right? Like you can just do your best and you can hold yourself to a higher standard, but it's really useless if you can't do any better, right? You just have to kind of reach your potential. That's the other thing is we all make mistakes. We all go back. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We make decisions based upon the information we have at the time. Mm-hmm. So maybe we didn't have enough information. Maybe we looked at it wrong. Or maybe there was a lesson we need to learn. And the only way you learn it is by making, you know, something bad happens and you learn and you move on. Right. So, yeah, totally. I, I would also add, we don't need to wait for success to have significance. Mm. You know, I think the, the way I, I approach it is also different. I came very close to dying when I was 20. Um, and so that really changed my worldview in a big way that I think has been super beneficial for the rest of my life. Um, and so that death awareness for me is a huge North star because it looks about, okay, I don't, yes, plan for the future, but also am I doing things now today that will fill my life in a way where I can be ready to die? And so it can be something as little as the way we interact with people. The, when you talk about vulnerability, right? Like what are we protecting against? Using that for me, using that awareness and using that North Star is what allows me to take emotional risks that make mm-hmm. my life so much more full. But also I would say for me, for me, the work I do in the world, suicide prevention work to me fills my life in a way beyond whatever I could have imagined or expected. Um, and I think that there's, it doesn't have to be your job. It doesn't have to be your career to begin filling our lives with living out our legacy while we're young. And I think the beautiful thing about that is if we start living out our legacy in younger years, it means we have so much more fullness. It, it ch- completely changes the nature of it. Um, so I don't know, some people find it a little bit like, you know, morose or whatnot to be, to, to think about death, but I think it, and it's, there's so many spiritual traditions where it's actually this really powerful teacher because so much, so many of our fears are rooted in our aversion to that. Mm. Um, but rather than it being this, this master or this, this thing that controls and drives us, I think with many of our challenging emotions or fears or experiences, if we can change our relationship to it and harness it, it can be an incredible servant. Yeah, that's, that's refreshing to hear. I mean, there's, there's a classic expression, which is the best day to start was yesterday, you know, because like so many people are stuck in inaction. And why is it any different for significance or legacy or, or doing good, right? Like it, it really doesn't have to, it, and things don't have to change much. I mean, something I've connected with you, Richard, about is kind of my aspirations toward philanthropy and giving back and some of the things I'm designing. And, and that's like, like, it's so simple to give back and to do something meaningful. You don't, you don't need to get there to do it like success. Like it's not like success is this, like this 
platform that you reach. It is the process and it is, you know, like it is just so much more than the destination. And I think that we view life very linearly in terms of we need to get to this destination to ultimately reap the benefits of what we're looking to accomplish, you know? And I think that's kind of a way that society can shift a little bit. And that's a way that I am definitely committed towards shifting specifically when it comes to legacy and philanthropy and giving back That's something I'm like, is definitely on my heart. So I, I relate to that. And cool. that's yeah. beautiful. all right, I got one last question and um, I'll probably let you go back and forth with it, but and it's, it's already been asked, kind of. I usually end with a takeaway, and I think this is a perfect takeaway given the scope of the book and everything. But Charlie, so we talked about how asking for help is one of the biggest lessons you've learned through your dad and writing this book. If you had to pick something else, something that maybe wasn't even written in the book, but it's a byproduct of you working with him and his philosophy. What like has left the biggest impression on you or, or what is the thing that you had wrong that you now see the light in? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's, there's so many. I don't know. I push against the I had wrong because I um, maybe had differently. I think before we wrote this book together, you know, we talked about my dad becoming a lot more vulnerable. I honestly had no idea how hard things were. And I think I just, I saw, yeah, I saw his experiences as much more unshakable than they actually were. And so I think the result of me being able to see more into his struggles is actually such a huge gift. Because I think, and this kind of draws out to the, a more societal piece, when we have this sort of curated view of the world where we're only seeing people's highlight reels, uh, it creates expectations that are completely unrealistic uh, and absolutely set us up for failure. I think mm -hmm. my dad did such a good job protecting us when I was younger from the fluctuations of his business. I'm so grateful for that. It would not change it for the world. Um, but I think growing into a time where he then was able to share in a lot of depth how honestly harrowing. I'm like looking back on my childhood. I'm like, I totally missed all these things. Like there was so much drama that I was just unaware of, but then, years old. then it gives me what it does is it, it gives more permission, I think for the hard parts and recognizing like, Oh, like there's allowed to be struggle and not just that, but like moments of joy can live when we talk about duality moments of joy and moments of struggle aren't necessarily separate we can dance in the rain we can we can have that back and forth and so i think being able to really celebrate the whole messy picture rather than just framing the one part of it that fits in a nice edited corner um to me like that's so much more meaningful and so i think it really changes how i look on my childhood um, it's absolutely changed my relationship with my dad, but I think it also really opened the door to start to examine what are the ways that I've held myself to certain expectations because I saw my family history in a certain way. And I think mm. we all have histories that we create in our heads, some of which are, are beautiful and some of which maybe the way we hold it up actually is a weight we don't realize we're carrying. Wow. Thoughts, Richard? I have to follow that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. what do you think? That, that, that seems like new information. What do you think? I, I would agree with that. I mean, I've become the student. She's become the teacher. Okay. Um, but um, I guess looking back, I think one of the lessons I learned 
uh, that I think would be really good for your listeners is the value of vulnerability. And I loved the closeness. We were very close before we wrote this book. But that vulnerability. So I would encourage your listeners to reach out to their parents and mm. ask them, tell me some of the hardest times of your life. Okay? Help me understand that. I mean, because it's not about knowing uh, what happened. It's about the opening up, just the connection, the flow between the hearts of connecting. You know, let's remember, some people have trouble finding food. They got kids at home. They're really harrowing. Okay, so it's, it's, it's hard to say what situation you're in, but in the big picture issue, okay, connecting heart to heart, talking about vulnerabilities, talking about what didn't work, or how hard it was is a blessing. And it's something that, you know, every time I would write about something, Charlie would say, I don't want to know what happened. Tell me what you think, what would you feel, what would you say? So the book is just a, you know, flowing from the inside of my mind of what actually happened and, and just sharing it with her just created such an emotional flow between us that, you know, if your listeners can reach out to, to their loved ones and it didn't have to be a parent, and say, let's talk about the hardest times. So what went wrong? How did you feel? And you talk about feelings. You don't talk about feelings enough. And Charlie really opened me up. I gave her permission. It was a safe place. But it really was something beyond words that I'll be forever grateful to. That is the best challenge I could ever. All right, everyone. So your challenge is to go ask your loved ones, what is the hardest thing that you went through? Um, wow, that that's beautiful. And it, it goes, I mean, it goes to show kind of the beautiful relationship you two have. It goes to show the beautiful family you guys have. And uh, it's just an honor to, uh, to be inside it for a little bit, to, to learn from it. And uh, just really proud of you guys. That's, it's really inspiring. I appreciate both of you guys so much. This has been incredible, um, really heartwarming, but also very practical and very real. So I appreciate you being vulnerable today and, you know, kind of expressing that truth. And um, just thank you. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Our pleasure. That is the father-daughter combo, Richard and Charlie Jaffe. Together, they co-wrote the book, Turning Crisis into Success, and that's exactly where we started. We talked about the definition of a crisis and how its overwhelming nature is difficult to process in the moment, but it's the source of so much potential. Then we talked about success. First was business success and how we can predict opportunities and problems to satisfy needs, as well as fulfillment and happiness and how understanding yourself is the key that unlocks your ability to experience other kinds of success. Then last, we talked about family and significance and how full life is when you believe that what you're doing in your day to day, even when it doesn't feel like it, is significant for someone else. The book, Turning Crisis into Success, is framed within seven key ingredients. And in it, you can learn how a world-class entrepreneur navigated business challenges while also reflecting and teaching timeless lessons. A link to purchase the book can be found in the description for this episode. And if you want to get in touch with Richard and Charlie, they have a forum for your questions that is also linked in the description. You are beautiful, and I hope you found that as value-packed as I did. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Self-Improvement Daily.